You're listening to the film podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another episode of the film podcast. On October the 21st, 2021 was a day the film industry learnt of the death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins, just 42 years old and seemingly destined for bigger film projects. This tragic onset fatal shooting incident still has a lot of gas in the tank to unfold and reveal what happened. The lawyers are now instructing their clients on what they should or shouldn't be saying. The courtroom drama will be one of the most anticipated, highly charged events for 2022 if this courtroom drama plays out next year. When the story first broke, we spoke to Dave Brown, a firearm safety coordinator based in Canada who has worked on hundreds of movie sets. He gave us his thoughts at the time of the facts that we knew back then to help us to understand the protocols and the procedures around guns. To be clear, I have never worked with a gun on set, so I was learning about procedures at the time of the incident as much as anybody else. But it's fair to say that we have all learnt a hell of a lot about gun safety on sets and the chain of command that should be followed at all times. Well, Dave Brown is back to discuss the latest news about the Rust shooting. G'day, Dave. Good to have you back on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. You know, we received a lot of emails at the time after we ran the first podcast to say thanks so much for the information that we presented. And you were mentioned in those emails for the clear and concise way that you were able to break down gun safety. Like I said, I was learning all the way. So, Dave, Alec Baldwin decided to sit down in an ABC interview and talk about what happened on that day when, tragically, Helena Hutchins was shot. A contentious part of that interview centres on what Baldwin said about not pulling the trigger, stating that he never squeezed the trigger. So let's understand in greater detail what that means to pull the hammer of the gun back an action described as cocking the gun, and then, as Baldwin states, that's when he released the hammer and then it made contact with the bullet, which in turn fired the gun. So what did you make of that comment? It was an interesting comment, and because this is the second time on, we've, we've had a lot of um, information a lot of it wrong, a lot of it really bad, a lot of misinformation, misunderstanding. But before I break it down for your listeners, first thing I want to do is thank you especially uh, and thank the listeners for for actually listening and uh, even emailing in because this is a watershed event in firearm safety in the film industry. It happened back in 1993 with the unfortunate death of Brandon Lee. I think this one is bigger. I think it's going to be much bigger than the Brandon Lee incident. And I think the per repercussions in the film industry are going to last for years. So I just wanted to open with that. But one of the misunderstandings, I think, was the, the firearm that he was using in that scene. It's, it's a reproduction. It's a modern-made reproduction of a what's called a Colt 45, which is a, a single-action revolver, sort of the old cowboy-style revolver 
back in 1880s when they started manufacturing them, they, they really had no safety. Um, the firing pin was directly uh, attached to the hammer. When the firearm was loaded with all the cartridges in the chambers, before you can fire it, you've got to bring the hammer to what's called the, the fully cocked position. So when you take your thumb and you bring the hammer back, and there's usually two or three notches that you have to pass. One of them is what they call the loading notch. It brings the hammer back just a little bit to remove the firing pin out of the hole. Then that allows you to open the gate at the side and that allows the cylinder to turn. If you bring back um, a second notch, there's usually what they call a, a half cock notch or sometimes called a safety notch. If a thumb slips, or something breaks internally, it only falls as far as that safety notch. It doesn't fall all the way. And then the third one, uh, or sometimes the fourth one, depending on the actual firearm itself, that's the full cock notch. Once you bring it all the way back, that's the position in which the firearm is ready to be fired. And as any cowboy firearm, it, it has to be cocked for every single shot. So back in 1880s or so, when they started manufacturing them, there was no safety, as I said, and that's why they would not load all six chambers. They would leave the top one empty because the firing pin would be resting directly on the primer of the cartridge, which basically meant that even a, just a slight blow to the back of the hammer would instantly be transmitted into the primer, which would then fire off the firearm, meaning you'd probably shoot yourself in the leg or shoot your horse or, or something like that. So they carried five rounds in a firearm that could potentially carry six. This is one of the biggest areas of misunderstanding today because the modern reproduction of that classic Colt 45 has internal safety features that they didn't have back in 1880. And for example, I can't speak for that specific firearm because the company that makes it, it's an Italian company uh, called Pieta. They manufacture several different versions of it. So the internal safety device could be what's called a transfer bar meaning that the hammer has to be cocked all the way back and the trigger is pulled before the hammer can strike the firing pin, which then strikes the primer of the cartridge. Or sometimes they use what's called a hammer block, which again requires hammer to be all the way back, trigger has to be pulled, and then the hammer can then travel far enough forward to reach the primer. As soon as you release pressure on the trigger, the hammer block would then move up into place and it would prevent the hammer from moving forward. So and because I, I didn't see the actual firearm, I can't speak for which one of those safety features was involved. But I, I can safely say um, that the law enforcement and the forensics are going to investigate. They're going to test very, very thoroughly. They will be able to tell us whether anything went wrong with the firearm, whether there was a malfunction in the firearm. And I will tell you that if everything was working properly on that firearm, in my opinion, it would be technically impossible to fire that firearm by your thumb slipping off the hammer. And it also, it doesn't make sense that he would be holding it back with his thumb while they're setting up the scene. I mean, it's, it takes a little bit of, of spring pressure. You've got to hold that hammer back. And there's no sense. There's no point doing that. The way the firearm is drawn from the holster, draw the firearm, aim it towards the camera, close up on the gun. You normally draw, 
clock the hammer while you're drawing as soon as it's in a safe direction and it comes up and it's pointed towards the target with the hammer in the fully cocked position. This is the way you would normally draw a single action cowboy style revolver. If I was on set, this is the way I would teach Mr. Baldwin. I would teach him exactly that. His story that he was holding it back with his thumb doesn't make sense. Just coming back to that point, because he's in a static sort of position, isn't he? Because he's talking to Helena and he's saying, how's that looking? You know, because they want that close up on him cocking the gun. The way he's explaining it is he's having this conversation with her for the position of the gun. So he's pulling the hammer back and they're getting that position for the shot. As I understand it, this is not him drawing it and then sort of getting into that position. He's already in a static position saying, how's that, how's that, how's that? And then he lets it off. Yes, but he had to draw it from the holster at the very beginning. So whether the camera was low enough to catch that or it was simply brought up into frame from the draw, he would normally draw it from the holster because you want to try and duplicate the action. Even in the close-up, you want to try and duplicate it as much as possible. So I, I fully expect that, yes, he was... Talking to Helena, is this the right angle? Pointed here, pointed here. They're making very fine adjustments. They're setting up the scene, especially on a very close, close-up shot like this one, where the focus is very critical. You can only see probably half the firearm in focus, so they've got to get it placed precisely. But I cannot see him doing anything with that hammer. I don't believe that he was saying to her, where do you want the hammer? Where should my thumb be? I am absolutely convinced that that hammer was all the way back in the full cock position as it came into frame. Okay, so that now sort of clarifies that a little bit. So what we're saying is that in between him pulling it out in that motion of pulling it out of the holster and then cocking it in that motion, after he's done it, he's then said, how was that? And she may have said, no, I just need you to be a little bit lower. And then he's done it again. He's repeated that action. And then she said, yes or no. That's the way it's going down, right? That's exactly, and and I've done, you know, hundreds of films, as you mentioned. I've done hundreds of thousands of scenes, a lot of them close-up shots like that, and that's exactly how I feel that it went down, and that's exactly what I would have instructed him to do if I had been on set that day. Just do cock the hammer back because it needs to be realistic. It needs to look like it's ready to be fired. You want that hammer cocked back in that close-up shot. So cock it back on the draw, just like he's done hundreds of times. And then what I would have instructed him to do is, of course, with the firearm empty, all you have to do now is, if you want to reset, is simply point it in a safe direction. And the easiest and simplest way to get that hammer forward is just point it in a safe direction, pull the trigger, and then start over again. So the two parts that were missed here were the fact that this is only done with an empty firearm. And the second part that he missed is the point in the safe direction part. Yeah, because he says in that interview that he would never point a gun at somebody, never. So I I didn't understand that because she was clearly shot and he was aiming the gun at her. So how can you say you would never aim a gun at a person? We aim firearms at people all the time, which is why we have industry safety standards. That's why in in a normal, well-run set, that firearm is checked 
literally 20, 30, 40 times a day in front of multiple people simply because you know you're going to be pointing firearms if you're not pointing directly at the at the cast, and we normally what's called cheat the angle, we normally point off to the side anyway, which is always good practice, but you're still pointing towards the crew. You're still pointing towards the camera. There's still lots of people standing in front of that firearm or potentially standing in front of that firearm. When you draw that firearm out of the holster, you're going to be sweeping 10 or 15 people in the crew with that firearm. It's just, it's normal. It's done all the time and it's done perfectly safe because an empty firearm is just a piece of metal. It's just as safe as any other prop on that film set that day when it's handled responsibly. Now, the hammer has to slip to engage and make contact with the bullet, as you've mentioned. And forensics are going to be able to show whether the gun was faulty or not. There are really only two outcomes here. Baldwin's theory is proved correct that something was faulty with the gun or that the gun was operating perfectly correctly at the time of the discharge of the bullet. That's correct, and that's why I can't state for certain what happened. I'm, I'm going by my opinion based on hundreds of very similar movies and based on common sense that says if that firearm was working properly, it doesn't make sense what he's trying to say. Now, I'll give Mr. Baldwin this. Because he's done that action probably hundreds of times, draw, cock the hammer back, empty firearm, point in a safe direction, simply pull the trigger and do it over and over and over again. I would suggest that, especially in high stress situations, it's likely that he could literally spend the rest of his life absolutely convinced that he did not pull that trigger. I will give him that. It's kind of interesting. I do training, obviously, for the real people, real police, real military, things like that as well. The instructor in the office beside me we were discussing this very point, and he's a traffic accident investigator. And we started talking about the incidents where people are stepping on the gas pedal, and they're absolutely convinced it's the brake pedal, and they run into buildings at full throttle. And the thing is, they, they will literally go to their grave, absolutely convinced that they were stepping on the brake as hard as they could, and the crash data recorder will show very clearly that they were at full throttle and there was zero braking but they are, they're still convinced in their own mind. So I'll give Mr. Baldwin this. They, he may have done it so often based on muscle memory, just based on doing it over and over and over again, that he may not even feel that he pulled the trigger. If that firearm was functioning correctly, he did pull the trigger. And that's all about the forensics. So the forensics will tell us one way or another. Exactly. And what about George Clooney? Because he's come out and he said that he checks the barrel every single time and between takes, as opposed to somebody like Baldwin, who just leaves it to the safety officer. And when Clooney came out and said it's absolutely ridiculous what has happened on the set of Rust, Baldwin, I think I'm paraphrasing, but he said something along the lines of, well, that wasn't very helpful. But, you know, there's a contrast between two styles of actors, one that will check the chamber with the safety officer and one that won't. His comment on what was ridiculous, I agree with totally. But I have to say in hundreds of films that I've done and worked with thousands of actors, I've never worked with Mr. Clooney, but I, obviously I've worked with a lot of actors. I've never 
ever had a single actor want to check that firearm themselves. They observe me checking. I show them the chambers. I show them the magazine. I check the barrel for obstructions. I do all of those things. I've never had an actor who said, oh, could I you take a look at the gun myself? Sometimes they'll say, could I take another look? Or if we um, do that on the first setup, after two or three takes, they might say, could I look at it again? You know, which I'm glad to do. And I, I tell the actors, and in fact, I tell everyone in the crew, every single person on set, has the right to come up to me and inspect that firearm at any time they want. But in all of the films I've always done, the actors have always been very satisfied just watching me and having me explain where the chamber is, the magazine, where the cartridge would normally be. If it's a revolver, what I would also do is show them not just the empty chambers uh, or not just the dummy cartridges. I would actually physically point it in a safe direction and I would pull the trigger through every single chamber. And I would show them that there is absolutely nothing that could possibly go wrong, nothing that could go bang. There's nothing other than empty chamber or the dummy cartridges, which are completely inert. They don't actually do anything. In fact, it's kind of an interesting story. I was working with uh, Robin Williams and uh, Robin never misses the slightest detail and I still remember the, our last day we were working together and, and Robin, in the middle of my safety check, he stops me and he looks at me and he says, you know, Dave, he says, we've been together for, for two months. You've showed me this firearm. You show me the dummy cartridges. We were using a six shot revolver. He says, every single time I watch you and you pull the trigger eight times. And he said, why? Why do you pull it eight? It's never seven. It's never nine. There's only six chambers. And I said, well, Robin, my, my personal reason is that the first six are for you. The seventh click is for me. And the eighth one is for Brandon Lee. And so that's why to this day, as part of my safety checking on a revolver is I will actually pull the trigger eight times or is now going to happen in the future with me. It's now going to be nine times. On a Western, it's all about the authenticity and realism of what the actor is doing with a gun. It's common for the actor to cock the hammer back as they draw. I mean, that that's irrefutable, right? That is yeah, just exactly. the way that it works. Yeah, if you don't, you're going to lose every single gunfight you're ever in, and and the problem is that you know if you lose if you lose the first gunfight, there's not there's no second gunfight, there's no second place winner. If Baldwin did pull the trigger, presumably in the past, as you say, he's done this hundreds of times before. So it's the muscle memory at work in the moment. It's an automatic response, but he just may not have realized that that's what happened. Correct. Correct. I, I'll give him that. And Dave, sabotage has been suggested. The live round and how the bullet got into the chamber, the courtroom drama for this and the theatrics of what is going to play out around this question has the ability to swing which way the prosecution goes down for the producers and anyone else for culpability on the set of Rust. I'm curious, from your expert firearms safety background, how hard is it to follow the trail of a bullet into the chamber of a gun like this in this case, particularly with that whole question about sabotage being suggested? It's not an easy thing to do. They would have to trace that back. During the Brandon Lee incident, by the way, it took about three months of investigation before they determined exactly what 
what actually happened in that particular instance, I can see that this is not going to be an easy investigation because sabotage, you know, as ridiculous as it is, has, has been raised as a potential, you know, reasonable doubt for the, in the mind of the jury. They were target shooting in the desert that day has been raised. So it, it's going to be a, a very tough investigation for them to complete. The whole sabotage thing is absolutely ludicrous. I mean, it would be like the White Star Line telling people the Titanic sank because somebody left a tap running in the kitchen. It's absolutely ridiculous. The whole idea that a professional film crew would actually slip a live cartridge in the chamber of a firearm hoping that an accident would happen defies any hint of common sense. And then the other issue is somebody could have taken 20 firearms, loaded them fully, left them on that table, and if they were handling things properly, according to industry safety standards, not one single cartridge would have ever made it to set because every single one of those firearms would have been checked. They would have been uh, determined that something was wrong immediately. How would anybody even think that they could get away with this? Not to mention the, the people that they're saying, you know, the professional camera crew, the union camera crew that were all quitting the film because of firearm safety violations and the abusive working conditions. They weren't there. They weren't at the table. They were busy packing up their camera gear. One of the producers was standing at the back of the camera truck yelling at them to get their gear off the truck and get out of there or he would have them arrested. They weren't anywhere near that table. They were busy just trying to get off that horrendous set. And what about the armorer and the target shooting earlier in the day? With all of your experience... I mean, have you ever heard of that sort of thing taking place? Sometimes you take actors and you go down to the shooting range on a day off, or sometimes as part of the training before the production, but you're nowhere near the set. Uh, there's no cameras, there's, there's no nothing. You're working at an actor with, with the, the real firearm, but it, it's at a shooting range. It's in a very safe location, but they're in the middle of a New Mexico desert. The armorer, uh, 23-year-old, She's growing up in an environment of real firearms, uh, fast draw contests. Her dad is the world champion fast draw artist. And this is all done with live ammunition. Draw and fire your cowboy revolver as fast as you can out of the holster. He's the world champion. To me, it makes sense that at some point, maybe not that day, but at some point she might have been drawing that firearm with live ammunition in front of some members of the crew maybe showing off. There's a lot of people that haven't come out and spoken publicly. There's a lot of people that were there that day. There's a lot of people in the crew. We haven't heard from them. We'll be hearing from them in court. And the United States prosecutor overseeing the Rust shooting investigation is not ruling out criminal charges and is exploring, as they put it, various legal theories at this time. And the statement was in response to claims by Baldwin that he didn't expect to face charges over the ordeal. He said, I've been told by people in the know that it is highly unlikely I would be charged with anything criminally, which was part of the ABC interview that he did. Now, if his lawyers are telling him to say that, I'd probably change lawyers because it's almost daring the prosecutor to charge him. Exactly. And I don't think he's criminally responsible. I think he's civilly responsible. Uh, I think the lawsuits are going to go on for years. 
I wouldn't point the criminal finger at him. I would point the, the criminal negligence at the armor and at the first assistant director. What about being a producer, though? You, you think there's no criminality there? Being a producer means a whole lot of different things. Being a producer means that you're in charge of everything happening on the day. You're in charge of crew. You're in charge of paying people. You charge all that. Or sometimes being a producer is just something that you get uh, your name attached to a project and then everyone else says, hey, uh, Alec Baldwin is in this project. He's a producer, so I'm going to come on board too. So there's quite a wide range of producers I suspect that he was fully aware of what was going on on that set. He knew the camera crew had quit. There's, it's obvious. He knew the abusive hours. He knew the, the lack of housing. He knew about all of these things. I don't think he knew everything. I don't think he knew that the crew hadn't been paid in two weeks. I don't think he knew that the production office had made T-shirts to mock the camera crew and their lack of housing. I don't think he knew any of that stuff. So that's why I, I would cite him for knowing the abusive hours and knowing the, the conditions and knowing the safety violations and not doing anything about it. But I don't think that's criminal, in my opinion. You know, you mentioned that you see things are going to change uh, down the track as a result of what may or may come in terms of a prosecution. And the area of that whole producer thing whereby some people will say, well, you know, he's a producer, but he's not really responsible for the day-to-day stuff. He's being paid a producer's fee because he's Alec Baldwin, but he's not responsible for what is happening on set. I can see the prosecution absolutely tearing that theory down by saying, it doesn't matter whether or not you're a producer and you're just being paid more or you're a producer because you've written the script. If you're a producer and you are on that film as listed as a producer, then everything that comes with being a producer is attached to it. So I think that there's going to be a huge change in the way these producer credits are given out as a result of what may follow criminally as a result of this case. No, no question about that. If that actually flies. So if that if the court actually accepts that, then yes, there's going to be major changes in situations like this where somebody is making a film because they want to make a film and they're putting in some of their own money in exchange for producer credit. And then to find out that the liability is just as on them as it is on every other producer, the day to day line producer, the executive producer. They all have this, the same liability. That's completely going to change the way they make films today everywhere in the world. You'll have people saying, no, I don't want to credit. I don't want to produce this credit. After what happened on Rust, forget it. Exactly. <laughs> you know, that's the reality of it. It's just going to completely shake things up. At the moment, you're currently working on a set, I think, where you're firing a lot of blanks. What's been some of the questions from actors and other crew members now when you're doing safety protocols? Because I bet the engagement from people is far greater now. You know, in the past, you'd have probably people, and you can always notice where somebody's just switched off, tapped out, and they're not even looking in your direction. But you'd have a lot more people paying attention, wouldn't you now? Well, that's, that's a very interesting question because when we first started this film, I sat down with the producers, and this is about um, four weeks ago, 
And I said, in light of what happened in New Mexico, what is your plans? What do you want to do? Do you want to go ahead with the blanks? Do you want to do visual effects? Do we want to have a combination of blanks and visual effects? And they, they basically said, well, what do you recommend? So I went through the advantages and disadvantages of each. And I said, why not show the world the way it should be done, the way it's always been done, the way it's been done without any fatalities in 120 years of filmmaking when handled by professionals. Let's show them how we can do it. And they said, that's great. We're all in favor of that. Uh, so is there anything different on film sets? Not really. And one of the reasons is because we've always had high standards. People have always paid attention. There's always been a lot of respect for the firearm and the safety briefings and things like that. And the people that really need to know have always paid attention. People like, obviously, the cast, the cast that are holding it, the cast that it's going to be pointed at, the camera crew, people like that. They've always paid attention because these are firearms that are very often real firearms. And, you know, the vast majority of the time, they're always empty, um, but they're going to be pointed in their direction. And they've always paid attention a little bit. I think the most telling thing was a crew member came to me a couple of days ago and he said, you know, based on what happened, um, what kind of changes are you making in your procedures? And I, I just said, you know what, we didn't change a thing. And he looked at me and he said, thank you. That's all I wanted to hear. And I did a safety briefing. In fact, I did a safety briefing two nights ago and it was just very simple. It's a replica firearm. It's not a real one, but it's important that you still do a safety briefing because you still have to tell people that that they are safe and you have to explain why and explain that it's a replica. And I pull the trigger a couple of times just to make sure that everyone knows that there's nothing that could possibly go wrong. And at the end of my safety briefing, which with a replica is 10, 15 seconds long, um, there's a couple of people clapping. There is a few people, you know, shouting thanks. And I went, okay, that's, that's nice. It almost brought tears to my eyes. The, the culture of the film hasn't really changed much because our procedures haven't changed. I think one of the other things that will probably change as a result of this is the armourer will not be asked to do a second job to cover another department. They should never be doing a second job. In fact, uh, in our own guidelines that cover the entire province, I put in those guidelines and they asked me to actually write the guidelines. So I put in there that the person handling the firearms has the firearms require undivided attention. And that means the person has no other job to perform at the time that a firearm is out. So that's always been our policy. That's been our policy for literally hundreds of years or the last 120 years. The armorer or firearm safety coordinator, as we term here, they have one job when those firearms are out and they get the undivided attention of that person. They don't do anything else. All right, Dave, well, I'll let you go because I know that you're busy with your current uh, film shoot and all the safety around the gun control. So once again, thanks for coming on to the film podcast. Okay, my pleasure as always. You've been listening to The Film Podcast with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.